Revolution in Egypt, Libya, and Tunisia brought new political parties to power, but it's raised concerns about the fate of religious minorities under Islamist governments. As we heard earlier in the program, the Middle East in general has experienced an outflow of Christians, Baha'i, and people of other faiths, and Muslim minorities in countries like Iraq face sectarian tension daily. But with religious violence happening halfway around the world, why should Americans be concerned? Here to help us understand are two guests. Thomas Farr is the director of the Religious Freedom Project at Georgetown University's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs, and Nina Shea is director of the Hudson Institute Center for Religious Freedom. Thank you both for joining us. Thomas Farr, with all the United States is worried about in this part of the world, nuclear proliferation, stable governments, the end to daily horrific violence, why is religious freedom, and in the encouragement of religious freedom, not merely a diplomatic goal of the United States, but a key strategic one as well? I think there are two answers to that important question. One is, historically, the United States has stood with the persecuted. To move away from that, I think, would be uh, endangering our own self-understanding. But in a more practical vein, I think there's a national security issue at stake here. So particularly in these countries that are reaching toward democracies, such as Egypt or Tunisia, what we should be trying to convince them of is that if you don't get religious freedom right, then you're not going to succeed at democracy, and you're going to continue to incubate, and for our purposes, export radicalism and terrorism. Nina Shea, can you, as you look over the landscape. Give us some examples of what religious minorities face in some of the countries in the region. Well, Egypt is the largest country in the Middle East and has the largest minority of any kind that is non-Muslim, and they are the Christian Copts. And they are really very frightened right now. They have experienced pogroms. They have experienced attacks on their churches, on their villages, and that happens with impunity. No one goes to jail for this kind of murder and mayhem against them. So they are very frightened. They're particularly frightened as they look at Iraq. The minorities there have been absolutely decimated. They've been driven out because of this rising intolerance with the Salafi movement and the Islamists there. And so the Egyptians are very, very frightened. They have been linked, actually, in death threats by al-Qaeda to the Iraqi Christians. Even before the tensions, civil wars, invasions of the recent era, Christians were pouring out of this part of the world into established communities in Europe, North America, South America, and Central America. Are they part of just a dying era of history? Is it an interest of the United States that, uh, that these communities, which often leave in search of better educational opportunity, better economic ac opportunity, uh, really maintain in places like Bethlehem and mm -hmm. uh, Jericho, Nazareth, uh, Aleppo, and, and so on. And it's certainly a deep wound for the church, but it's also, as Tom said, a geopolitical issue for the United States and a human rights issue. They, they have been leaving for a long time. I think at the beginning of the 20th century, they accounted for about 30 percent of the Middle East population. They're now down to about 3 percent. But in a place like Iraq, they've gone in the last 10 years from three, 4 percent to 1.5 percent of the population. It is a geopolitical problem. Uh, Brian Grimm, who's uh, a researcher at the very respected Pew Research Center, has found a direct correlation between intolerance, religious 
uh, persecution and peace and stability. And I, I want to talk about the Baha'i, too. I mentioned that they, under the new uh, constitution in Egypt, they have absolutely no right to have a house of worship. And the education minister of Egypt just announced that the um, Baha'is will no longer be able to attend schools. It's a brain drain for these countries. They are moderating influences. They believe in modern education, women's rights. They speak Western languages, so they've acted as a bridge between East and West. All of this will be lost. Thomas Farr? At Georgetown, we're doing a two-year study on the question of Christian contributions to freedom. Half of the program is going to be focused on what you're talking about now, and that is what have Christian minorities, what have they contributed to their own societies, and uh, what would be lost if they are exiled, if they are drawn down, if they're repressed. In many of these countries, as as, uh, Nina says, they have been Uh, fundamental to the development of culture. One of the outcomes, we hope, of this study is to say to these countries, take a look at your own interests. What are you losing if you chase these people out, Christians and others? Uh, What do you gain by embracing religious freedom for everybody, which is full equality under the law for religious uh, individuals and citizens? During the rise of political Islam, one of the tools of government pressure has been the use of blasphemy laws. We see it all over the world, but certainly in this part of the world. And with new constitutions being written, Nina Shea, is blasphemy a big 21st century crime? It is. We're seeing the resurgence of the application of blasphemy and apostasy codes. In and explain what that is. They're, they're actually, it's the same concept, apostasy and blasphemy would be people who turn their back on a particular religion or are heretical in some way um, or perceived as heretical by the prevailing powers. Um, And I just actually co-authored a book with Paul Marshall called Silenced that really discusses this phenomenon of this rise of these these codes so that you have it under different titles in various countries. In Egypt, it's called Insult to Heavenly Religions. And in fact, it's Insult to Islam. Actually, one of the richest families, a man from the richest families of Egypt, uh, a copt who, after parliamentary elections in Egypt, when the Islamists swept those elections, uh, texted a, a little cartoon of Mickey and Minnie Mouse dressed in Islamic attire, and he was put on trial for blasphemy. There is a woman who has just been sentenced, along with her seven children, to 15 years in prison in Egypt for having reconverted to Christianity after having been a Christian originally, converting to marry uh, a Muslim man, because it's illegal for the two religions to marry in Egypt, and then reconverting back after he died. So th- these are very unjust punishments. There, are, um, Many, many moderate Muslims are targeted by them. They are silenced by them. Um, if there is a, a suggestion that, that, that um, there should be greater women's rights, for example. Thomas Farr, uh, the United States has encouraged the growth of popular government, all the way from uh, Rabat in the West and heading all the way to Afghanistan in the East. But popular will often means that minorities are silenced, oppressed. How does the United States square these two, discourage blasphemy laws, when in fact what we've asked for is what we're getting. Democracy in order to endure requires certain fundamental commitments to what we would call liberalism or human rights. Instead of preaching this, however, I think we have to make an argument to the self-interest of these countries. 
And it is simply this. If you really want democracy to work, to be stable, then you have got to uh, find a way to accept this thing we're calling religious freedom. We need to translate this into a very practical argument. What do you want? If indeed most of your citizens want, as I believe most Egyptians want, for example, uh, a democracy that will be uh, based on the f some of the tenets of Islam and will last, will not collapse into anarchy or into theocracy, you won't get this. You won't get what you want without religious freedom. Religious freedom encourages people not per se to insult others' religions or their own religions, but what it says is that you have the right to speak out about Islam or about Christianity in the public square. This doesn't mean that religions have to accept the idea that they're, you know, we, we should be insulted, we have to accept insults. But you have to deal, I feel, I'm a Roman Catholic, I feel like my religion is insulted with some regularity by some daily newspapers. The response to that has to be reason and writing and additional speech not laws against blasphemy or apostasy or defamation. So we have to develop, in my view, uh, American diplomatic programs that can speak to the self-interest of these countries. If they think we're attacking their religion, we'll never get anywhere. Nina Shea, the United States has major allies and major interests in the Middle East. And if you look at a country like Saudi Arabia, it oppresses its Shias it really comes down hard on even the private practice of Christianity. How can the United States maintain relationships with key countries in that region while this kind of thing is going on? We have, until now, really ignored this issue, particularly with Saudi Arabia. You're right, Saudi Arabia allows no houses of worship other than mosques, and, and even within Islam oppresses its own uh, Shiite minority. And Saudi Arabia is feeling tensions, particularly in its eastern part where the Shia are. It could unravel for them. It would be uh, terrible for world oil markets and us. And we have to start really making this point that the importance of religious freedom for peaceful coexistence between us and them and among themselves. Nina Shea is the director of the Hudson Institute's Center for Religious Freedom, and Thomas Farr is director of the Religious Freedom Project at Georgetown University's Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs. Thank you both for joining us. Thank, Thank you. you. Religious Minorities in the Middle East was produced by Kimberly Adams, Joseph Browdy, Catherine Lanfer, the team at Tunisia Live, and A.C. Valdez. Edited by Martha Little with additional production help by Flawn Williams, I'm Ray Suarez, and this is America Abroad from Public Radio International. You can hear past programs by subscribing to our podcast on iTunes, finding us on the TuneIn or Public Radio International apps, or by visiting our website, americaabroad.org. Support for this show was provided by Public Radio International stations and listeners like you. The program is also made possible by the generous support of the Stewart Family Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.